0: People around the world, but particularly um, in the West and perhaps particularly the Western middle classes, simply collapsed themselves into uh, a kind of a larger, a larger America. They didn't really think, ever think of themselves as separate from America culturally or politically. Um, and, uh, they, you know, that played out in kind of in Americanism and, and anti-Americanism. And I mean, this is a point yeah. Alex has also made.
1: I, I think that's right. I, I think. I think if you look again at, at the archives in the mid nineteen forties. American uh, elites began to argue that America's interests were consonant with the world's interests. And I think things like NATO and the Marshall Plan effectively created an actually existing North Atlantic community that, that did imbibe this idea about uh, about America's interests being literally the same as the world's interests. And I think that's an enormously important historical phenomenon that actually hasn't been strangely examined in detail.
2: Hey there, welcome back to Alpha Bunga, Bunga. I'm Alex Hocheley. Alpha Bunga Bunga is myself, Phil Cunliffe, and George Hoare. And you guys weren't going to say hi. Very
3: true. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, was a, it was a true, was true statement. True There's only, truths, really stated, only yeah.
2: truths on this podcast. Um, and today we are talking about dollar hegemony. It's actually the second part in the series. Uh, the first one, we talked to Dominic Loezer and Yakov Fagan about the political economy of uh, the dollar dominance of the world. And this is the second part. We're going to be talking to Daniel Bessner, who's associate professor at the University of Washington and an expert on foreign policy. More specifically, beyond uh, dollar hegemony, we're going to be talking about how it underpins the American empire, as well as talking a little bit about what the foreign policy of Trump has been so far and what it's likely to look like under the next president, be it Trump or uh, perhaps some Joe Biden guy. So, before we call up Daniel, uh, Phil, first of all, uh, you have a new book out uh, called Cosmopolitan Dystopia, uh, and it is about international relations in the broadest possible sense. What do you tell us <laughs> about it and how this might relate to what we're going to talk about here?
0: Yeah, it's a bit. I mean, it's it's it does connect, in fact, directly with the conversation. So in Cosmopolitan Dystopia, I wanted to look at Forever Wars, um, and to embed it in a larger picture of a global constitutional order. So not just to see Forever Wars as a problem, as a kind of a series of mistakes in American foreign policy, which is the way it's usually discuss now. So, I mean, it's striking how much of the liberal commentary it has flipped over from being pro-war to acknowledging the problems of America's forever wars, but it's still understood in term, purely in terms of foreign policy to a great extent. So in cosmopolitan dystopia, I tried to see that as part of a context of a larger global constitutional order with a whole legal and political infrastructure. And I call that cosmopolitan dystopia. What I didn't get a chance to do in the book is to look at the dollar hegemony that underpinned it. So this is why I'm excited to talk um, to Daniel Besner about it, because he's written um, some pieces on this, which are interesting and make important contributions to this debate about the role of the dollar in perpetuating American Mm -hmm. empire today. So I'm looking forward to it.
3: Yeah, it's also good to have, I guess, a a material, a political explanation for this perma-war situation. It's not just successive policy failures or mistakes but there is a deeper structural explanation which does come through in your book but yeah it'd be interesting to see what what um, Daniel has to say about it
2: i thought you'd only read like the introduction and conclusion of phil's book um, i haven't read it yet i just I, got my copy cuz the mail is
3: slow, yeah but i under, but... but i underlined important bits um <laughs> so i feel like i've i feel like i've passed the key the key you just, element. Throw
0: me, you just throw me under a bus in front of all of our, <laughs> our listeners.
3: Uh, excellent stuff. No, I, um, I, I do introduction, conclusion, and then the rest of it, you know, so I can enjoy it. I don't feel like I have to rush it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. This is good. People, you should read, you should read uh, books cover to cover, George. Um, but it's fine. It's just Phil. It doesn't matter. Anyway, let's call up Daniel Bessner. <laughs> all right. Hello, Daniel. So... For listeners, uh, as well as being a, an associate editor at Jacobin, and also having uh, worked as an advisor to foreign policy to the Bernie Sanders campaign, when uh, so, we're probably going to double back and talk a little bit about that towards the end of this. Uh, but firstly, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about your work and your relationship with the Quincy Institute. Um, for those who don't know, it's famously funded by both the Koch brothers and George Soros, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, that's one for the conspiracy theorists there. they want to run with that. But why, do you, why don't you tell us a little bit about your work and your relationship? with the Quincy Institute?
1: Sure. So uh, t- just to be specific about it, I believe it's funded by the Charles Koch um, group uh, or his foundation and right. George Soros' Open Society Foundations. It's not the brothers themselves, but Charles Koch has his own thing. Um, and my my understanding, not you know such an expert on this, is that more so than David Koch or that group associated with David Koch is that Charles is more interested in foreign policy and sort of the traditional libertarian. The U.S. does less in the world except economic exchange. So just to be a bit Mm. more specific about that. um, But for viewers who might not be aware, uh, the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft was founded uh, last year. Um, it's uh, intended to be an anti-militarist think tank, or, or really the sort of way it's referred to in the academy, and you guys are probably aware of this, is that it's supposed to promote military restraint. Um, that is, the United States does less in the world with its military. Now, that means different things to different people. Um, I'd say within the Quincy Institute, I'm hoping that's so-called spilling tea, but I'd say there's a lot of agreement that the United States should do things like get militarily out of the Middle East, um, and less agreement about what that means for the United States' global. Basing uh-huh. structure, um, and particularly what the United States should do with regards uh, China and East Asia. So there's disagreements about that. But my work for them, um, I'm, I'm primarily associated with the um, group called Democratizing uh, Foreign Policy. I help them come up with their program for that. And, and what's what I see. Uh, the major purpose of that group being, it's still in Kuwait a bit, but uh, one to, to make literally American citizens and not just citizens but undocumented people that live in this country, um, more connected to the foreign policy making process. And what I would like to do personally um, going forward in the next you know decades or so is, is to bring uh, more voices, including people who are actually affected by Amer- American imperial action in places like Afghanistan, Pakistan, you know, most of the world, Latin America um into the foreign policy conversation in a meaningful way, because foreign policy right now is such an elite sphere. Um, but in general, Quincy, you know, promotes a uh, restraint oriented um, so-called grand strategy about the, w- what the U.S. should do in the world.
2: I know that sounds uh, interesting and and very useful uh, sort of work, uh, intellectual work, really. Um, We're going to get on to uh, kind of American empire, uh, as well as the history of American foreign policy. Um, But firstly, let's begin uh, with something you've written recently uh, with David Adler on how dollar hegemony underpins the American empire. Um, Of course, we should note that, you know, there are many financial interests that are quite vested in in dollar hegemony and a strong dollar. Um, Just to cite a few, you know, Silicon Valley venture capitalists, American corporations, importers, uh, the oil industry, and of course, uh, the most important constituency, uh, podcasters who get their Patreon subscriptions (laughs) in dollars. Uh, So really uh, dangerous vested interests there who need to be taken down uh, at all costs. (laughs) Um, So you could tell us a little bit, uh, run us through the sort of argument of how dollar hegemony underpins the American empire.
1: Sure. So I think, uh, and and I'd love to hear if you guys think I'm wrong in this, but my Take on, on a lot of the literature that explores the workings of the international political economy, particularly Marxist oriented literature uh, or literature just from the broad left wing, um, both in this in the United States and abroad, is that it, it examines usually one side of that equation, particularly the um, economic realities uh, of geopolitics. Um, but what I think is really important to do, and it's actually a theoretical task going forward, a real analytical task, is to connect more explicitly uh, American security realities or the realities of American empire with the ways in which uh, the American empire undergirds international financial transactions and just uh, international economic exchange more broadly. So as people I'm sure know, the dollar is the reserve, uh, the world's reserve currency. And this provides the United States with enormous amounts of political power and political leverage. On one hand, it allows the nation to essentially deficit spend um, to whatever degree that it wants, which essentially funds the American military machine. Of course, the U.S. military spends, uh, sorry, the U.S. Uh, spends about roughly $740 billion on defense, which is about $100 billion more than the next six or seven countries combined, you know, China, Saudi Arabia, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And this is made uh, possible in part by dollar hegemony. Uh, Moreover, in terms of just practical leverage, um, the fact that the dollar is the world's reserve currency provides the U.S. government with the ability to uh, threaten cutting off foreign countries' access to the Federal Reserve. So uh, people remember uh, Trump recently killed, uh, the Iranian general, uh, Qasem Soleimani, in, in, I believe at Baghdad's airport. And in response, the Iraqi government said that the United States should, uh, finally withdraw all of its troops. And in response to that, Trump said, if you do that, we'll cut off your access to the Fed and basically Iraqi opposition to that, as far mm-hmm. as I, I understand has withered. Mm-hmm. So it provides that sort of leverage. And then a final thing that it does is that it also provides, uh, basically intelligence organizations within the United States and access to an enormous amount of financial data because you know to access the Federal Reserve um, gives the United States uh, basically the ability to in, in various ways spy on what other countries are doing um, economically um, but what I do think it's going forward and then I'll just conclude on this is that I think it's important for us analytically to connect these workings for uh, to for example um, the American the fact that the United States could destroy all the, uh, any country in the world, essentially with nuclear weapons. So, um, the interaction of these two spheres is something I think really critical to map out that we haven't quite
0: done. So if to, um, pick up on, I mean, one of the important points, I suppose, about when we talk about American empire, um, and it's often glossed over, but it's um, significant to think about in historical terms, I suppose, is when we're talking about the empire of bases, um, and so you have the kind of the enormous um, global military footprint of the U.S., the enormous spending on maintaining U.S. military primacy, and then undergirding that the dollar hegemony that you've just described. Could you maybe tell us a bit about what, what do you think is significant about the form that American empire takes in contrast to earlier forms of um, empire and um, what the significant differences might be?
1: Yeah, I think the the most important difference to recognize is that the American empire is, in my opinion, the first truly globe-spanning empire. Um, there are elements of of, of different regional dominations uh, undertaken by, for example, the British and French empires, uh, the German empire in uh, uh, Africa, um, and, and Portuguese and Dutch empires um, throughout the world during the colonial period. But none of these, at least in my opinion, not even the British empire, were truly globe-spanning. Uh, primarily, not totally for technological reasons. The advent of nuclear weapons... Uh, in particular, uh, and the advent of basically high-speed planes and then the intercontinental ballistic missiles, essentially allows the United States, in my opinion, to truly dominate the world in a way that no other nation has been able to in history. So the the, the globe-spanning character is, I I think, historically unique. Moreover, that globe-spanning character, what one might refer to as the globe-spanning character of American violence, is undergirded by, again, a truly globe-spanning currency, where every country in the world really has to use uh, use dollars. They have to uh, interact with the dollar system in a in, in diversity of ways. And you see that by the fact that any attempt to create you know, um, countervailing currencies, either by China or at points in, in the 2000s, I believe by Iraq and Iran, ha- have failed, that the dollar is so dominant. So I think this is one of the things that, I, 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 you know, we like to talk about what annoys us about the left, is that what annoys me about the left is that I don't think we fully appreciate the sheer power of the American empire. And and you get a a lot of loose talk of decline and things like that. Um, Whereas in my opinion, what we're actually seeing is a decline of so-called soft power or, or you know, the consensual or at least nominally consensual Mm. aspects of American empire. Uh, And and in fact, the pure, what what I think matters most, you know, we're we're Marxists and the material realities of the American empire, the ability to to wield violence and the ability to control international economic exchange remains incredibly strong. So um, I think that it's an enormous, enormous obstacle that if we want to, you know, attack in a meaningful way, we have to take very seriously.
0: So I, I agree with what you say. And though I would, I suppose I would qualify in two respects. Um, uh, the first is, I think, uh, we're seeing a kind of a revival of America. And I know this is a debate that Alex has engaged with separately from the podcast, but I think we're kind of re- seeing a revival of a kind of American soft power. Um, which is perhaps disconnected from the American state, but I think that's evident in the globalization of Black Lives Matter as a kind of phenomenon connected to American policing that becomes... Um, uh, a vehicle for all sorts of people all over the world to express dissatisfaction um, uh, through the form of um, protest against what seemed to be um, what is you know an American problem. Um, and I, I mean, I don't want to kind of get sidetracked by that, but it's only to note it that I think, you know, it testifies to the resilience of American soft power. But the other element I wanted to bring up was, so I mean, I take your point about, you know, uh, not overstating American decline. On the other hand, I can't help but think that the the reason we're talking about America's forever wars is the fact that they failed to impose political order um, in two countries in which they seemingly should have, Afghanistan and Iraq. So despite this overwhelming military uh, might, they failed to construct enduring you know, political structures, civic structures to maintain American empire. So. I mean, this is what strikes me is that what we're seeing is imperial failure, not the apotheosis of American military might. And also, um, you know, not even a civilizing mission. It's more like a de-civilizing mission. I mean, they've actually turned those countries backwards, (laughs) Libya, Iraq. um, They've been forced into regression, you know, not into kind of building um, some kind of stable, oppressive new order to extract to ensure American interests
1: yeah I, I love the phrase de-civilizing mission and i am very much going to steal that i don't know if you came up with that it's <laughs> a fantastic phrase um no, but i, feel I would free. say uh, i would say in terms of your first point about black lives matter i would say that we're, we're still uh, arguing in a larger american idiom um i think that that is definitely the true uh the, the case especially uh Given the fact that English is really the lingua franca of the world and has been for seven decades at this point, so I, I mean I don't think that soft power is going away. I, I didn't mean to imply that, but I, I do believe that there is um, a, a decline in sort of that consensual aspect that I referred to earlier. Which is the, but the United States is still going to call the shots. I think of global culture at least for the time um, for the time being. So I totally take that point. Um, but I would say in terms of the of the of the last point, I, I agree. Uh, the United States has not achieved its goals. However, I would say that that's long, long been the case. If you look at Korea, if you look at Vietnam, if you look at the fact that the United States repeatedly tried and failed to overthrow regimes covertly, if you check out the, uh, the book by Lindsay O'Rourke, the political scientist, they did it, you know, 60, they tried to covertly overthrow regimes about 66 times during the Cold War. In 44 of those cases, they supported authoritarian regimes. Um, but I would mark US power not by the success of its achievements, um, the U.S. has constantly failed to achieve its goals. But by the fact that the United States structures world politics, even if it fails to achieve its goals, right, it, it'd be difficult to say that the U.S. didn't no. directly shape Vietnam or didn't directly shape Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, the entire world, even if it failed to achieve its goals. And in fact, yeah. I would I ro- point out that ironically, in its very failure to achieve its goals, The fact that the United States still remains dominant reveals the source of its power. It doesn't even have to achieve what it wants in order to maintain its imperial status.
0: Yeah. And in fact, I'd say, um, you know, in fact, I'd say that even confirms the point about the um, dollar hegemony, that um, the, you know, the structure of American power remains intact despite um, significant you know setbacks for the um for demonstrating American military prowess or its um efforts at imposing order. And I think that those failures, military failures, political failures, um that don't seem to damage the underlying infrastructure of American power to any great degree. I think that you know that should tell us something about the character of that power. um anyway, exactly. i'll uh, I'll hand over to um uh, to Alex, I think. Well, I mean,
2: yeah, to, to turn uh, more specifically to the question of dollar hegemony, I mean, I think it was notable that, you know, uh, I don't know if you cite this in the piece, but, you know, uh, Hugo Chavez uh, said in, in mm-hmm. 2007 while he was still alive, uh, you know, as, as it tends to be the case, you can only say things while you're alive, uh, the, that okay. the fall of the U.S. dollar uh, mm-hmm. would not be the fall of the dollar, but it would be the fall of the American empire. Um, and, and the title of your piece is... Specifically, that ending American militarism and all its associated costs requires ending dollar hegemony. So, could you first of all explain to us how you would propose ending dollar hegemony?
1: <laughs> that, that's a I mean, not question. you, not you personally, uh, but how,
2: how? What would be a proposal for ending dollar hegemony?
1: Um, well, I think that's a really important question, and I think the first step. To the first step to at least explore is some form of meaningful monetary multilateralism, whereas other countries probably would have to be organized at this point or, or around China or, or around the collection of powers. Um, I don't think OPEC could really do it anymore because, uh, in my opinion, in the next several decades, we're going to see a move away from oil in particular mm. and a turn towards. Um, um, different forms of energy, probably renewable energy, probably energy centered in the United States. I don't think they can really do it, but some sort of coalition, uh, anti-imperial coalition that that puts forth a meaningful alternative currency, probably uh, linked to specific raw materials markets. What I think be the place to start. Um, But I think uh, the the sad fact is, and and, uh, again, feel free to disagree with this, is I do think that like many things to weaken the American empire, it's going to have to emanate primarily domestically. Um, I think that the the empire is just so powerful that external conditions and external constraints just don't impose that much of of, uh, restraint on it, to be frank. There's going to have to be a political coalition within the United States that's um, dedicated to ending dollar hegemony. Uh, basically, a political coalition with an international imagination. Now, this is like the dream of the left for quite a while. Mm. I'm not sure if there's one um, in formation, but one could hope.
3: So, actually, this leads really nicely on to perhaps one of the criticisms that could be leveled at, at I guess, this this um, type of response. How would you respond to the the criticism that? Any solution along these lines is essentially it's been tried before as a sort of global keynesianism by which we could mean that at the Bretton woods conferences during the second world war at which the allies laid the foundations for the post-war order keynes wanted to rope the americans into establishing a sort of global currency which they refused so the global keynesianism charge would be that the anything along these lines um essentially placing one's faith in the selflessness of the american elite or even in uh, joe biden should he become president and the executive as well in um, to be willing to relinquish dollar hegemony um, is not a realistic strategy because we can we can list in fact we listed at as of the program some of the interests finance capital silicon valley podcasters etc who are arrayed against any move away from this current situation of dollar hegemony
1: I mean, I completely agree. A hundred percent, it is not going to happen anytime soon, and it's certainly not going to happen under a Biden administration. Um, I would say that we, the, the, we in the left, and I'm referring particularly right now to the American left, it, we have to recognize that we're incredibly weak. Uh, from my historical perspective, right. I think at the at the best case scenario, we're pursuing ed- educationist projects that will take decades uh, to realize, barring some sort of massive ex- exogenous shock, which is always possible. But I completely agree. This is not ed- anywhere uh, anywhere close to happening what I view for example why do I write about these things what I'm trying to do is essentially build the intellectual basis for arguments that come uh, that come to fruition only decades later and my inspiration for right. this is really, I don't know if you guys have ever read Daniel Rogers' book, Atlantic Crossings. It was this big book. And one of the major arguments was that a lot of the municipalization projects that happened in the United States, for example, city governments taking over um, utilities or taking over transportation networks, were were basically uh, forged. Decades before through intellectuals making these arguments. So I think when one traces the impact of intellectuals one has to really be speaking in the time frame of decades. What the best that I could do is convince the next generation or the next generations um, of this project. I don't think it's anywhere near realization. I think you're totally right about that.
2: And I suspect that by the point at which um these ideas would have filtered through and the left might ho- hopefully be uh, more powerful and in a position to actually act on these or at least have these sort of ideas, uh, direct left wing strategy, that the world would be a pretty different place by then. I mean, you know, notwithstanding the qualifications about American decline, uh, there would still be relative decline you know, versus China, one would imagine by that point, uh, by which point. Uh, You know, I don't know if we'd be talking as a potentially coming yuan hegemony. I don't know. You know, um, I guess that would be (laughs) something to think about, you know, if we're talking a generation time span.
1: Yeah, I mean, the thing with China, um, basically, the, the thing that I've learned from all Chinese experts is that, like, we don't have a great sense of what's actually going on within the country. We have like ideas, and and there's a lot of Kremlinology that that goes on, um, not only amongst the Chinese elite, but also what's literally going on in the country. So, um, who knows what's going to happen with China in 50 to 100 years. Um, But I I would agree that my sense is that the United States is going to eventually retreat basically totally from East Asia and any aspiration to regional hegemony in the next 25 to 50. Years And and then we're we're really talking about uh, about a different world order. But I think uh, a sort of orderly retreat would necessitate thinking seriously through monetary multilateralism or ideally from a less perspective, um, pursuing that sort of global global Keynesian strategy that was no way going to happen in the 1940s after U.S. elites had in 1940, 41 decided to totally pursue American economic and military primacy.
2: No, absolutely. I mean, I wanted to maybe turn, I guess, if we could reflect more broadly on American foreign policy beyond just the dollar question. I mean, I think the disappointments, and that's putting it lightly, uh, of uh, the Obama years, specifically in terms of foreign policy, have been followed up by Trump, which, you know, I mean, I, I remember, you know, trying to weigh up a Hillary versus Trump presidency, looking from abroad, and thinking, well, for a lot of people around the world, Trump might actually be better. And, I mean, would you still, I mean, I'm not saying that you held this view, but I mean, would you agree with that looking now, you know, a couple, three years on that, uh, you know, Trump has at least started fewer wars than Hillary has or would have done rather?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's fair. I think it's, it's pretty clear. My guess is that if, if Hillary had won, there would have been more, uh, a serious intervention in Syria. Uh, there might have been a shoring up of troops, a, a, a more even more of a shoring up of troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. So yeah, I, I think that's you know broadly speaking the case that Trump started fewer wars or deployed fewer troops than Hillary would have done. But I think necessarily this structure, which is to me the most meaningful thing, has remained relatively in place. You know the basing system remains the same. The defense budget has only continued to increase. Um, but the difference is Trump, sort of his uh, chaotic character does random things like assassinate Q- Qasem Soleimani or, or, or drop, I think he dropped the mother of all bombs, the Moab uh, on uh, in, in Syria at some point. So there's it's kind of these random things that happen but from what i consider to be a, a marxist materialist perspective things have remained relatively stable um and trump isn't much of a departure or, or from what has been going on in the united states for decades at this at this point probably the biggest departure is the tariff wars that he started um, but those have been relatively minor, all things considered, and have been primarily more symbolic and have affected um, a, a, s- a few specific industries like steel, but haven't signaled a significant structural shift in any meaningful way. So to me, three years on, he'll probably lose in November. Trump, Trump's foreign policy is going to be defined by slight chaos, but mostly the same.
2: Yeah, I mean, I remember at the beginning of his presidency, people trying to divine what he might do. And, um, of course, leaving any aside any of the kind of prognostications about, you know, he's going to be a fascist or whatever, which I think we can completely dismiss. Um, there was a lot of discussion about whether his aspect or rather his uh, focus on deal making might suggest a sort of change. And I think maybe in his dealings with Iran, that suggests that's the case that he's willing to sort of up the ante, but uh, maybe refrain from using military means. I mean, do you think that's been a character of uh, a characteristic of his foreign policy to date?
1: Yeah, I mean, relatively speaking. But then you had the Clinton-Iraq sanctions in the 90s, which, which were essentially the same. Um, so this has been, you know, long in the, uh, a a, law, uh, a long used tool in the toolkit of American empire. And, and so I think what, if we were to actually like look at the archives between Clinton and Trump, I bet you there's actually a, a continuity of literal officials uh, promoting the same exact uh, sanction oriented strategy. So I, again, like sure, in some sense, there's a departure with the maximum pressure campaign and, and Hillary wouldn't have left the JCPOA um, but but in, in, in from the macro perspective, the structural perspective, I think it's relatively the same.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, yeah, I guess what I was trying to get at is whether there's just a a slight kind of rebalancing in one direction versus another. Not that it's more progressive, but just that you know it's using it's not using like the 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 right hand which is holding a hammer. It's using the left hand which is pulling the purse strings uh, to invent a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, yeah, I, I'd say that's that's true. But you know, there are precedents going back to Nixon and the Madman Theory and things along those lines. I think Trump is 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 more an amalgamation of you know transpartisan bad things and anything r- interestingly new, in a in a, in a meaningful sense.
3: Right. So. Actually, just a just a couple of questions, maybe on building on your role as a foreign policy advisor to, advisor to, to Bernie's campaign. Um, what sort of I guess the question is, what were you what were you developing there in terms of foreign policy and how maybe could you outline the differences between what Bernie's foreign policy might might have looked like had he become president and what what Biden seems to be developing?
1: No, that's that's a really um Interesting question. So personally, what I was focused on... most uh, uh, dramatically or what I was most interested in was actually reforming the national security state. So oftentimes, I think we talk about foreign policy like it's grand strategy and we're playing on a risk chessboard or Axis and allies chessboard for some older millennials. Um, But what I was really most uh, most interested in was trying to encourage Bernie and his team to really rethink the foreign policy-making apparatus. It's incredibly undemocratic. Um, Foreign policy... Has generally been made in the White House since 1945. Um, so that not even in the Defense Department or the State Department, but literally in the White House, the National Security Council. And I think that's that's pretty um, problematic, just in terms of of, of democratic structures. And uh, what I, what I was urging Bernie to do. Um, if he had one, was to establish a series of task forces that would focus specifically on the literal foreign policymaking process. Because what, what I would personally want is for uh, one Congress to have much more of a say than it does now. But he, perhaps even more importantly, as I gestured toward earlier, or ordinary Americans to have more of a say, not because I think, that, you know, the masses are necessarily wiser. I think that would be an ahistorical thing to say, even though in general that probably is true, there would be more restraint people listen to the public. But I I do think that it's important to gum up the works of the American empire. And that one of the most important things a left wing president could do should they win the presidency would be to do just that. I think dismantling the system would take years and years and years. But the best one could do in the immediate Mm -hmm. term would just be to gum up the works to make it literally more bureaucratically difficult to to use violence. So that's what I was focused on.
3: Yeah sorry. yeah, sorry, sorry to sorry to interrupt that, and you might be moving on to this anyway. But do you think do you think um, Biden will do any of this this gumming up, or do you think it'll oh, no. sort of yeah. it'll be a continuation of the Clinton Obama people, you know, uh, thus a return to war? I saw a, a good tweet oh. along the lines of so you're a fan of Obama named seven countries he's he's bombed. Are we going to get this this sort of uh, direction if
1: if we <laughs> if we see Biden? Absolutely. Uh, My guess is that Biden will appoint someone like Susan Rice or Samantha Power, Secretary of State, or the National Security Advisor. It's going to be I actually think it'll be, um, so basically a good way to think about Obama is that the first term was more violent than the second, because in the second term he w- was, I believe, more confident and was uh, more confident in ignoring the Hawks in his administration, who interestingly, um, and this I think requires some analysis, many of whom were women, people like Susan Rice, people like Samantha Power, people like Anne Marie Slaughter and earlier Hillary Clinton. I think there's actually some interesting gender analysis to do there. Um, but, uh, my guess it would be more akin to the first Obama administration, particularly with who Biden would appoint, there would be none of that what I, what I consider to be necessarily, uh, necessary necessary self criticism of the United States and its foreign policy making structures.
2: I mean, well, you know, so angry Slaughter that that's that's one of those for the nominative, nominative determinists. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sure that joke's been made before, anyway. <laughs> um, Phil, sorry.
0: I've, yeah, I had a follow up. Um, so you seem you seem skeptical, uh, Daniel, about the capacity. Oh, I mean, I guess you seem that the farthest we could expect would be gumming up the works, uh, gumming up the American empire, as you say, rather than, say, um, uh, closing down bases, you know, or bringing troops back home or um, cutting military spending. So you see those kind of things are so deeply embedded that they're beyond the capacity of a normal um, electoral cycle to shift.
1: They're beyond the capacity in a country with an incredibly weak left-wing or anti-militarist constituency. I think one of the – it's like Kaiser Soze, right? One of the brilliant things the American empire did was convincing its citizens it doesn't really exist. So if you're an American Mm. high school student, for example, you learn almost nothing about what the United States has done in the world. You you, you know, there's a chapter on Vietnam, sort of a noble loss, maybe – uh, and then you spent a lot of time talking about World War II, and frankly, you don't even usually make it to Vietnam because you know the school year is so constricted. So I think there's just no sense that the United States has done awful things abroad, and there's no real sense that what the United States does abroad redounds to the, uh, the interests of a very special few at home and it really hurts most people in the United States. So absent that sort of consciousness, absent any sort of really organized left-wing political movement, I don't see how one could reasonably expect things like the bases to be shut down, you know, it's not for nothing that Bernie never talked about the bases. Um, I don't think he mentioned them once, right? Because it's so far beyond the political imagination of ordinary Americans, uh, because they don't even know that the United States has 800 bases, right? How are you even going to talk about shutting them down when they don't even know the basic material fact? Um, so, again, I think I that think the, 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 the project of the American left, the anti-militarist left, or really anti-militarist anywhere, uh, at this point is the best we could hope for is to gum up the works or and pursue an educative project where we begin making Americans aware of the fact of their empire. I think that's also a unique difference, to go back to your earlier question. That's a unique difference. I mean, the British in, in the United Kingdom itself were aware that they— Stood atop a globe-spanning empire, right? There was the, yeah. the idea of the Raj. There was the idea of these, you know, the British Navy as the protector of the seas. There's not really yeah. that consciousness in the United States. Um, so, without that consciousness and without a political movement, I just don't see how how there could be meaningful um, what would amount to revolutionary change.
0: um so i suppose taking taking further on that theme you've written recently that in um in in your words in an era defined by transnational and global challenges we must begin thinking about ways to transcend the nationalist ideologies that have divided humanity i suppose i'd flip it around though aren't you downplaying the way that um transnational and global ideologies have divided humanity and been an instrument of class rule. And I mean, wouldn't that be the pattern of the last 30 years that we've seen precisely these um, cross-cutting elite alliances that have been deeply invested um, in all the kind of um, aspects of globalization, including um, dollar hegemony, and who've benefited from these structures of um, supranationalism, transnationalism, and... And um, escaped, I suppose, the confines of domestic politics and the nation state where ordinary voters had more capacity to be able to shape politics according to their vote.
1: Absolutely. I mean, Marx was right here. Marx made this prediction, what, in the 1860s, that this sort of transnational bourgeoisie, or however you want to characterize it, would arise. No, I completely agree. The way I view that is similar to the way I view the state. You know, you want the good ones and not the bad ones. And I think that's the best we could hope for, right? We we want, I think, it, to me at least, a foundational elements of left-wing um, thought is that it's profoundly humanist, and, and, it, and it views all human beings as basically metaphysically equal and philosophically equal. So what I would argue in favor of as we pursue that educative, uh, educative project that I spoke about is that we also try to increase the sorts of good transnational working-class solidarities um, and get rid of this uh, elite transnational solidarities that have been articulated in books like Quinn Slobodians, um, Globalists. Uh, and, and which an, a number of scholars have pointed to. Um, so that's what I would say. Like, you want, you want the good aspects and you don't want the bad aspects. And, and you want, you know, ordinary people to, in a meaningful way, uh, seize power from the technocratic elites that make decisions without any democratic recourse. Um, so I would totally agree that if, I, w- I would even trace it farther. I would say not only in the last 30 years, but really in the last 50 years. And if you want to go intellectually, in the last 100 years, years, there's been a project to make transnational alliances, perhaps best embodied in the very project of the European Union, that are totally disconnected from any sort of democratic or parliamentary basis. And that, I think, has done a lot of damage to the world. Um, But I think at the same time that we criticize that, we could also promote the types of transnational alliances that operate at a different non-elite level, Organized around building the transnational solidarities that I, at least as a leftist, look forward to. But I would say, you know, the, the, to me at least, the first lesson of Marxism, of really of historical materialism, is to be aware of your moment. And 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 I agree right now that the nation state seems to be the only vehicle at all for 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 pushing uh, the world in a direction uh, in the direction in which we'd like to see it go. Um, but I also think that as we recognize that reality in terms of like what we as intellectuals are doing, and we're primarily you know dealers in information let's be honest we're not manipulating the levers of power um, themselves what we can do is also in various ways try to uh, push that humanistic element of socialist marxist thought which i personally think is is the core of this way of thinking does that if that makes sense
0: (laughs) i I mean i i I follow what you're saying certainly i suppose i'd push you a little further then because um your The vision you put, you put the vision out, you stake it out in Marxist terms, but your solution is Keynesian Um, money, multilateralism, uh, global currency. Um, How do you, how do you square that circle of Marxist analysis and Keynesian solutions?
1: Um, well, I think, again, I, I would square it by trying to recognize the moment of history that we're actually in. And, and this is something I think Yaakov might have prob- might have actually said, because he and I always have these discussions. I mean, we're just not, we're not even approaching living in a, a post-capitalist world or a Marxist world. Um, that's not even, in my personal opinion, on the table in the uh, immediate or even medium term future. So we have to make use of the tools that are available now when we're actually, when when we, I mean, the left are actually in power without losing sight of the Marxist the Marxist dream or the utopian dream. So the way that I view it now is that we use Marxist an, an analysis in a capitalist world in order to use capitalist tools against itself. That, to me, is the best that we could hope for. I just don't see anything else. I, but please feel free to tell me if you think I'm missing something.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess one criticism one could level, I think, and not just about specifically what you've said, but about that whole general approach is that it ends up being even more utopian that you're expecting elites to carry out certain reforms which are just unrealistic to, to expect them to do that. And, and the, the period in which uh, the period in which th- the, those sorts of reforms were carried out in the past were precisely points of much greater class mobilization um, and, and working class power, which isn't uh, which isn't where, where we are now, I guess. Um, and so that, I mean that isn't to, to ar- make argue a fatalistic point, rather just that the kind of the, the sort of more intermediary so, so supposedly more realistic approach ends up actually being more utopian uh, <laughs> than, than the kind of full revolution but- now kind of argument.
1: For sure. I mean, I guess to me and this is how I would frame the question. Um, when we're talking utopia and strategy, do we think revolution is more likely or that a, tor- a type of Leninist vanguard would be able to basically seize the means of the state and um, and manipulate the levers of state power to achieve? You know, to at the very least make the lives of, of working people or ordinary people better. So, in my opinion, and this is just my reading, I, history events may prove me wrong. In the present United States, there is no class of revol- uh, there is no there is no um, possibility of revolution, uh, either uh, literal communist revolution or social democratic revolution. That's not in the cards. And so, the most efficacious strategy would be to uh, train a Leninist vanguard that would be able to do things like move into the state should a Bernie Sanders win the presidency. And that's why, or or some, you know, obviously he won't win now, but some future Bernie Sanders because what I think, um, and, and this is why I think institutions like the Quincy Institute are so crucial, I view them primarily as training cadre Should, let's say, an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez win, uh, when the presidency, she would be pushed in many directions to appoint people who are veterans of, let's say, the Obama administration or the, the coming Biden administration. And what we, the best we as the left can do is basically say, no future left-wing president or someone who might be sympathetic in various ways to left-wing causes, there's actually this group of cadre who could who could begin to manipulate the levers of state power. Um, I don't view that as more utopian than revolution. I think that's far more reasonable uh, than revolution in per- um, and, and, and this emerges personally from my own um, scholarly research into the history of libertarianism. Uh, and just to, I'll try to be very brief here. Um, I, I studied the history of libertarianism uh, and how it basically came to infiltrate various. Um, elements of the republican party and the state itself and they essentially pursued a cadre building strategy that they stole ironically from from lenin if you read someone like murray rothbard he's reading lenin directly quoting lenin uh, and arguing in favor in favor of a leninist strategy in order mm. to make change and i think in the u.s context the libertarians were profoundly successful because of that that the adoption of ironically a wing strategy so to me it's not utopian and it's more realistic in given the the way power is actually organized in the united states
2: okay um well i mean let's we should actually move on to uh, to the final section here uh, speaking of of history um we're going to try to discuss something that you've written about historians bringing the U.S. state back in, um, and we're going to try to do this without reference to uh, methodology or to um, or, or, or to too much of the trade of uh, of or rather to the you know to the practice of writing history um, and try to bring out the political import of uh, of these questions. So the thing you've written, uh, you argue that um, basically that historians should focus more on the U.S. state because of its importance. So, in debates about, for example, uh, the Second Indochina War, the what's so-called Vietnam War, um, that you have uh, a face-off between orthodox interpretations and revisionists, and then you have what has happened more recently is international, transnational perspectives, which have tried to uh, highlight the role, uh, the and and the kind of uh, causal importance of uh, non-state actors and and other actors outside of the U.S. Um, so maybe. Instead of me kind of going on about this in vague terms, if you could explain a little bit, firstly, what that debate plays out like um, amongst historians talking about the Vietnam War, and what your proposal is in terms of bringing the U.S. state back in.
1: Sure. So, just to give a, a bit of background, so for for most of the modern the history of the modern american academy which really starts after world war ii let's say from the 1940s until the 1990s the majority of american historians who studied the history of u.s foreign policy focused primarily on the united states they used archives that were based in the united states and they asked questions about why the united states did what it did in the world Uh, beginning in the 1990s after the end of the cold war there was a, a belief among historians that um the rise of globalization um, would eventually decrease America's power in the world and increase the power of other countries and their influence on world affairs. And what I argue in this piece, along with my co-author Fred Logval, uh, the piece was published in the Texas National Security Review, is that globalization essentially led historians to de-emphasize the centrality of U.S. power to history and to instead argue, first, that other states had as much of a his, uh, has mu- had as much of a history on international relations as the U.S. after 1945, and second, that non-state actors, transnational groups in particular, like so-called terrorists or, or financial interests, were more important than the American state in directing world affairs. Um, And so what I argue um, in the piece is that this has actually prevented historians from understanding the simple reality that after 1945, it was the United States more than any other power, whether it's the Soviet Union or China or certainly uh, smaller powers like Iran or Germany or Libya or what have you, that it was the United States that shaped the structure of world affairs. And that um, it, it was wrong, frankly, it was just wrong in the 1990s to think that you could read a globalized world into the past. And that if one wants to understand why international relations after World War II um, went as they did, one needs to focus primarily on the United States. What's really interesting to me here, though, is is, is the question of politics, because as someone who was trained as a historian and who grew up uh, in an intellectual context profoundly informed by the international and transnational. Turns there was the sense that to not focus on the United States was to be left. That by decentering the United States, someone uh, someone was essentially pursuing a left wing project. And there, there's mm-hmm. some truth to that. By by focusing on the U.S. Uh, horrible actions on the ground, which I think is absolutely centrally important, one was making a left wing point about American empire. But I think by 2020, and particularly in light of the history of the last 20 years, it's not necessarily the case that, in, in fact, it, it it might be um, profoundly left wing to focus on the development of American power, um, first to highlight the, the what I consider to be the reality of the U.S. centrality to international relations, um, but also, and perhaps more importantly, to locate weaknesses in that power structure in order to learn how to change that power structure themselves. So this paper that I published uh, incited an enormous debate Amongst historians with people arguing that, for example, myself and my co-author basically didn't give a shit about foreign peoples, that we just wanted to study um, elite white men and us countering that. No, we didn't want to actually do that. We wanted to study American power in in light of what we learned from studying other peoples, et cetera, et cetera.
2: I mean, that seems to, I mean, that, at least to my mind, um, brings something up, which is, I mean, it seems like a, a I, I mean, you know, correct me if I'm wrong in my interpretation of this, but often that what would be a sort of um, radicalism within kind of, I'm trying to put this in, in not-to-academic words, but I mean, you know, either epistemological radical, radicalism or um, ontological radicalism, in, in in fact, let's just call it generally, like, academic radicalism actually leads to kind of politically more conservative positions in actual fact. Um, and it ends up kind of, you know, all these attempts to kind of decenter perspectives ends up leading to a much more, uh, I suppose, quiescent political position uh, than might otherwise be had. And so... What you're proposing, which I with which I would agree, is that, you know, you say, look, the U.S. is very important. It's, a, it, it's an extremely powerful state. And so you have to look at how it's making its decisions. And all this attempt to um, the, the sort of, I guess, intellectual academic radicalism actually doesn't uh, solve the political issues that it wishes to do.
1: That That's exactly sense. what I say. And I think, I mean, to me at least, it's pretty ironic that in the 1990s and 2000s, like the era of the indispensable nation and American unilateralism, uh, two generations of historians essentially decentered the United States. That seems to me a, a very strange thing to do in retrospect, like, like in the era of the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war, when the U S military was marching around the world on its decivilizing mission, uh, historians were arguing that, that, um, non-American actors were most important to understanding, uh, why the United States did what it did in the world. Um, and, and to me, I think that the, the, there oftentimes, as an intellectual history, there's there's an irony there. Um, so to me, it's just unquestionably true that the United States has exerted more impact on world affairs than any other nation in the last seventy five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and it and it it does lead, I think, in some senses to a politically quiescent attitude, and more importantly, it leads to anti strategic thinking in some sense. I think what historians yeah, yeah, can do. Yeah. Yeah, is actually like map out how you, particularly historians operating within the United States. One of the most important things we could do is actually map out how U.S. power works, ideally to change it in 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 a mm-hmm. meaningful sense, right? Like to, to to um point to that old Marx quote. Um, so I think there's there's a deep irony there, uh, and it, I found it very interesting how much pushback we got from uh, across the political spectrum, um, who who, who essentially basically viewed my my, uh, proposed project and my co-authors proposed project as a crypto conservative one when when i think it's the precise
0: opposite
3: Mm. i I just maybe drawing on a couple of things that you've you've already mentioned you accuse those who emphasize transnationalism of reading some specific conditions of the 90s and noughties into the past which i think is a really interesting and provocative claim and might actually well be right Uh, but can you explain a little bit is is it these, is it the globalized conditions of the nineties and noughties that are being read backwards? What exactly are these, these features of, of that period, which are then, um, the basis of this reverse reading of history?
1: That's a great point. So it's, it's hard to, Uh, Sorry, that's a great question. It's hard to imagine now, but if you go back to what people were arguing, if you like read what people were arguing immediately after the Cold War, and there was this belief that the Cold Wars that after the Cold War ended, the United States would reduce its global military footprint because it no longer faced an existential enemy, and it would allow other powers uh, to to really rise. Uh, and so there's this belief in the 1990s that we we're, were moving away from a bipolar to a more multilateral world. Even though, uh, at least amongst historians and analysts, even though, uh, of course, the United States did the exact opposite, and instead of becoming more, uh, embracing multilateralism, whatever that may mean, we could have a discussion about that, it embraced a very significant militarized unilateralism. But people didn't know this at the time. So that's one thing that people begin reading back into the past, the importance of other powers in shaping international relations. The second thing that people read back into the past is. Sort of the non-state globalized movements. The movements Mm. of people were arguing of people, of capital, of ideas that that, uh, analysts like Tom Freeman were trumpeting in the 1990s. Historians began to read those sorts of transnational connections into the past. And, And those transnational connections, I should emphasize, they do exist. They truly did exist. There were transatlantic crossings, there were transnational crossings, and these did have an effect on history. The problem, at least I think, comes when people attribute too much causal importance to these sorts of processes Mm -hmm. as as opposed to the importance of domestic development themselves. And, And in my understanding, American culture, particularly the culture of American elites after World War II, was profoundly parochial. It's not quite as true in the 1920s and the 1930s when American elites, you know, they have their year in Europe, whatever, whatever. But it is true after 1945, the period that we talk about in the paper, when the United States thought it was the best nation in the world, it was actually the most powerful nation in the world, and they didn't want to Mm. listen to what other people, mainly Europeans, thought about it. Um, But I do think that historians made the wrong turn by by emphasizing non-state groups, which are just— less powerful. And one more brief point, which I think is really interesting, is that oftentimes transnational historians actually located the influence of transnational groups, like, let's say, Amnesty International in the state, right? So if you're examining why amnesty is important, oftentimes you're saying how amnesty influenced the policymakers' choice. And so I think there's an irony there that in the emphasis on transnational movements, they actually located transnational influence in the state itself.
3: Right. Rather than
2: rather than in civil society. Right. And NGOs aren't the uh, motive force of world history. You've heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> Phil. But people
1: wanted to believe that, right? People they did. Yeah. to believe it. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah.
0: that's right. They really did. Um, so a more specific claim you make is that U.S. narcissism, in your words, um, means its domestic politics are exceptionally important to understanding world history. And I wondered if you could explain a bit more what you mean by that and maybe give us a few kind of key examples that you would use to illustrate a claim like that.
1: So I think the most important Key example that we use and that we, I'll bring it up because we extensively analyze it in the paper, is essentially why did the United States escalate the Vietnam War in 1964, 1965, right? This is a world historical decision that leads to the deaths of millions of people throughout Southeast Asia. Uh, and of course, the, the tens of thousands of Americans are killed and wounded, et cetera, et cetera. So that's like a really important world historical decision with world historical implications. Me and my co-author, Fred Logevall, who basically has dedicated his career to this question, argue that the reason the United States did that, the reason that LBJ did that was primarily for reasons of domestic politics, right? People have talked. I mean, they're, they're, people have talked about the domino theory, about the United States wanting to uh, reaffirm European allies, about the United States wanting to combat international communism, and that's all true. But at least um, uh, in our in our understanding, when you go back to the actual archives, LBJ is freaked out about uh, the Great Society. And he's freaked out about the Democrats losing future elections. That is what is really driving his decision on Vietnam. And I think that's true in a lot of cases that when American presidents are making decisions about what their nation does in the world, there are a lot of times, not a hundred percent of the time, and not solely, but there are a lot of times doing so for peculiarly domestic reasons. Not only um, I would say, Domestic reasons of domestic politics, but also, you know, the the, the reasons of domestic ideology, how various ideologies of capitalism, how various ideologies of race, et cetera, inform how US, uh, U.S. decision makers understand international relations. They're not really overly concerned with how these things will affect the world itself, but how actions in the world will affect the United States and perceptions within the United States, particularly amongst the voters.
0: It's, I mean, what I, you know, what you're saying, I, I, enti- I entirely agree with, um, and I think it kind of it stretches further and it loops a bit back to what we were talking about a bit earlier with the globalisation of BLM and um, American soft power and scare quotes is because one example I've used before, but um, I'll use it again and it's stayed with me for a long time is um, we're talking about Vietnam with British undergraduates, um, first year, second year students, and they'll talk about they'll talk about we in Vietnam. They'll use a the third person plural, and not because they thought that Britain fought in Vietnam. Um, you know, I mean, uh, in this, uh, you know, in this instance, th- these students didn't think that, but they simply didn't draw a distinction. Um, you know, so I, it's partly the period they grew up in that they, you know, part of a kind of a larger West in a post-Cold War era. But it still, it also speaks, I think, to the way in which, um, particularly in the year of the '90s and the era of globalization, that. Um, People around the world, but particularly um, in the West and perhaps particularly the Western middle classes, simply collapse themselves into um, uh, a kind of a larger, a larger America. They didn't really think, ever think of themselves as separate from America culturally or politically. Um, and, uh, they, you know, that played out in kind of in Americanism and, and anti-Americanism. And I mean, this is a point yeah. Alex has also made.
1: I, I think that's right. I, I think I think if you look again at, at the archives in the mid nineteen forties. American uh, elites began to argue that America's interests were consonant with the world's interests, and I think things like NATO and the Marshall Plan effectively created an actually existing North Atlantic community that that did imbibe this idea about uh, about America's interests being literally the same as the world's interests, and I think that's an enormously important historical phenomenon that actually hasn't been strangely examined in detail. Enough, because I think if one were to look back on, let's say, the seventy-five year period and the one thousand years, one would be able to meaningfully speak of a North Atlantic community or even a polity, not in a formal sense, but in in terms of identification that uh, informed and affected uh, world history. So, in in some sense, what you're pointing to is that America's parochialism was in fact encouraged and embraced by people who were in that community, by the UK, um, to a lesser degree by France, although eventually by France and especially by West Germany, which of course was occupied by the United States and depended on the U.S. nuclear umbrella until, you know, various French and and British uh, actions in the 50s and 60s allowed them to get their own nuclear weapons.
2: All right, great stuff. Um, I think we might leave it there, if that's all right with you. Um, I think that's all been uh, very uh interesting. uh, illuminating really uh, as to and I think made a very important point you know I think that's come across uh, through this whole discussion uh, about recentering. US power and reminding everyone you know not just obviously in the US but but abroad as well uh, about what an overwhelming uh, power it is which is sometimes forgotten I, I think specifically today when we talk about waning U.S influence waning uh, U.S soft power and so on um, so yeah no that was very useful thank you
1: Uh, Thanks so much for having me on. I I love you guys. So I'm
0: really honoured to be on. (laughs) That's that's
2: great. That's always great to hear. Uh, Thanks, Daniel. Thanks very much, Daniel.
0: That was great.